You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Hey guys, it's Kat and Stefania. You're listening to This Life Explains It All, Vera's podcast. Welcome. Today we have a very special guest on the podcast, author, speaker, professor, Catherine A. Sanderson. Catherine is a professor in life sciences and the chair of psychology at Amherst College. She's the author of The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity, as well as her more recent book, Why We Act. She's written five college textbooks that are widely taught in middle and high schools around the country. She lectures around the country and was chosen by Princeton Review as one of the best college professors in America. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic, Washington Post, and on CBS, NBC, and more. This woman is literally the most credentialed person we have had on this podcast, and she is a joy to chat with as well. Yeah, this conversation is so great. And a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is all around trusting ourselves, setting boundaries, how to be our most authentic self. And it's based off of what we've studied around psychology and the subconscious mind. And what Catherine brings and references is tons of research that backs all of these ideas up. She is so, so knowledgeable. And as we were talking, you'll hear in this conversation, she is just kind of rattling it off and connecting the dots and helping us understand how one piece relates to another. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. And one of the things that she talks about that I loved is this idea of a sensation seeking score. So there's a more in-depth view on this in her actual book, but essentially you can ask yourself a few different questions. Like, do you like to dip your toe in the water or do you just launch right in? Do you get thrill off of jumping out of a plane or is that something that doesn't excite you? And you go on a trip, would you rather stay at a luxury hotel or would you rather go camping? And just see where you're at with those questions. I'm definitely on the end of luxury hotel and (laughs) I definitely zip my toe in the water, like the actual literal water. And the point of that is just understanding yourself a bit more so you can actually know what does make you happy. And I was yeah. thinking about that for myself because I actually am really happy when I'm just relaxing in a quiet area in a relaxing naturey space, but I'm not really doing anything. Like I'm just reading a book or just sitting, you know, like it's it's really not doing anything. And I think it's important because especially with social media, we can see ourselves looking at what everyone else is doing and we might say, oh, wow, you know, that person just 
got married or, or had a baby and they look really happy. So maybe I should do that. Or that person just jumped out of a plane and they look really happy. So maybe I should do that. But until we really understand what actually makes us happy, none of that really matters. And that won't work for us. So I really yeah. like that because it's a guide to help you really identify what it is that makes you happy. Yeah. Well, I did it based off of the three questions that she asked. I didn't do yeah. the full one in the book yet, but I will do that. And really what it made me realize is that when I'm really happy, I'm what I find relaxing, which is completely tuning off with a book, even a TV show, laying in a quiet place. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that just because I'm not doing something active at the time or I'm not High sensory, ultra sensory. Exactly. And that's okay. But I think it's like, that's one example, but I think it can relate to anything that you see somebody else doing and you're like, oh, maybe I should try that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to enjoy doing that or be happy doing it. Yeah. I think that can be so true with our, you know, life paths, plans, the milestones we think we need or want to achieve that like sometimes if we really sit back and say, wait, what do I actually want? Not what do I think I have to do? Mm -hmm. It's such a simple idea and question, but it can really sometimes help us understand that those things that we think we needed to check off or do because we've already done something on the way to them is necessary, but it's not actually what we want. So I think that that's really relevant there. Yeah. And we were just talking about this the other day, how we both require alone time. And that's when the ideas start coming on what we actually want and what we, like even 20 minutes for me of alone time, ideas come to my mind. And if I'm having a challenge with something, it comes to me. So I think that is something that I know that I need to recharge my battery or just make me happy, really. (laughs) All right. Well, before we get into the conversation with Catherine, she's Catherine with a C or Catherine with a K, also known as Kat. (laughs) So last week I got my order of my Saqqara reset meal plan. Oh yeah. How was that? Yeah. So, so good. So I just did the three-day reset, which I wanted to do because I'm kind of embarking on really like taking my healthy eating and nourishment a little bit more seriously. And I love sugar. That's my vice. And so I'm kind of doing this reset, but it was so, so good. So the food was amazing. There's meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Everything tastes so good. It's done for you. And I felt like the biggest difference that I felt, first of all, I was full the whole time. It was actually more food than I normally would cook or eat myself if I didn't have that. The biggest differences that I noticed from doing it were that I just felt like there was this like swollenness in my body prior that completely went away. One of the things that I noticed is that like, even though I do eat healthy and I eat pretty plant-based, I do have a lot of like oils and salt and I cook with that and I eat those kinds of things, some sugar. And so even though I'm healthy, like there is that kind of swollenness or like a little bit of bloating that still happens. And eating that way, even for a few days, really made me feel like that swollenness was gone and just made me feel like I had a lot more energy. So it was a really, really good reset. And I feel like I'm making better choices now. 
That's great. Yeah, I've been meaning to ask you about how that was going. Yeah, it's a great reset because my body kind of got rid of all of the, you know, you get addicted to sugar, salt, Mm -hmm. those things, and you kind of like clear all of that out of your system. So yeah, it was really good. If anyone wants to do it, you can still use our code. If you have not ordered from Saqqara before and you're a new customer to Saqqara, you will get 20% off anything you order. So if you want to do a meal plan for a week like I did, or if you want to get any of the clean boutique products, like the powders that I love, you will get 20% off anything that you order. Use the link that is in the show notes of this episode and use code XOVIRA, X-O-V-I-R-R-A, and you'll get that 20% off discount. And let me know how you like it. So what have you been doing? Products, practices, what are you most into this week? Well, I've talked about this before, so it's not necessarily a new thing, but I'm still doing the breath work, the morning gratitude breath work every morning through Niraj Niraj Nike. It's called Soma Morning Gratitude Meditation, and I love it. I feel like it's such a great start to my day. It goes much faster for me than a silent meditation because you're actively doing things. So I kind of split it up. This is how I do runs as well. I split it up into parts. (laughs) The main thing that it does is it helps you align your internal world with your external world by raising your vibration. And I have noticed that I feel like my, just in general, my vibes are higher and I'm attracting different things into my life. Mm. All right. Well, we'll link that as well. If anyone wants to try that out, it's free and You can check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. All right, let's get into the episode. So in this conversation with Catherine, Catherine Sanderson, not me, (laughs) we talk all about happiness and mindset. This is really the theme of this conversation and there's so much good information. We talk about when it comes to our happiness and our mindset, how much control do we actually have over it and how much is predetermined? How much is genetic? We talk about the impact that the information we expose ourselves to has on our outcomes and on our experience, on our performance and the way that we see ourselves. We talk about the concept of fixed mindset versus growth mindset, particularly as it relates to relationships, those who believe in soulmates versus those who don't. What does this mean for our relationships? Yeah. And we talk about anxiety and the reframe as an energetic arousal, how we can use anxiety to our benefit. We talk about the power of placebo. We are fascinated by the findings from the clinical trials and surgeries that Catherine has shared. And we talk about comparison. So comparison to others and how that affects our happiness as it relates to wealth and money. This is a great conversation. It is jam-packed with information. We hope you guys love it. Let's get to the show. After I found out about your work uh, through my friend, I've been listening to the positive shift on Audible, which is something that I've been getting really into lately is like listening on on Audible. And I love yours because I always love when the author themselves is reading it. And so it's been amazing because I feel like 
you're sharing in such a digestible way so much of the research and then the action that we can take associated with that that backs up a lot of the things that, especially for Catherine and I, we talk about and explore and to see, okay, here's the research that backs this and this is like what has been found is is really, really interesting. One of the things that I'd love to start out with is this idea of when it comes to our happiness and our mindset, how much of it is in our control and how much is predetermined? So first of all, I want to say two things. So I want to say one, that when I recorded The Positive Shift, what I heard was that if it's a fiction book, it's always better if an actor does it because an actor is like expressive and can like do the different voices. But what I heard repeatedly was that if it's a nonfiction book, it's always best to have the author do it, that people just find it sort of much more engaging. So anyway, so I'm glad you're listening to that. That's always nice to hear. Yeah. Also say that one of the people, I can't remember if it was on Amazon or Goodreads, but somebody pretty early on after the book came out, The Positive Shift, wrote a review of it that was kind of negative. And they were like, Mm -hmm. oh, I mean, there was just so much research. And I was like, yes, there's so much (laughs) research. So it's clearly a book that um, people who don't want the research behind it are less interested in. So I'm always excited when there are people that are kind of nerdy, like me, like you all, clearly, that that research aspect. Okay, but now to your question. (laughs) So really... That's why I wrote the book, because there are people in the world and people, you know, listening to this who do really tend to find happiness very easily. And then there are other people who don't. And I'm actually one of the people who doesn't. And I think if I wasn't one of the people who doesn't, I couldn't have written the book because in all honesty, if you're somebody who always finds the silver lining, well, you don't need the book. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what you do. And I gave a talk back when I used to, you know, give live talks uh, (laughs) to a a keynote audience. And in the Q&A, a woman raised her hand and her question was not really a question. It was more of a comment, but she was like, I was driving over here today to hear your talk and I got stuck in horrible traffic and I just looked out the window and saw this beautiful sunset and I just thought about how beautiful nature was. And I looked at her and I said, well, you didn't really need to come, (laughs) ma'am. Anybody who can be stuck in traffic and like look out at nature and the sun setting, like they don't need a talk on the signs of happiness and they don't need the positive shift. But here's what's wonderful. We actually do get control about half of our happiness. And that means that if you're not good at it, you actually can develop that ability through practice. And the example that I always give is there's some people, my brother is actually one of these people who have like a really good metabolism. You know, they can eat, you know, french fries and cheesecake and you know brownies and whatever, and they never gain any weight. And they're just, their body just burns it off. And now I'm not one of those people. And if I ate whatever I wanted, you know, I would weigh like 500 pounds. And so I have to sort of make a deliberate effort to make sure that I'm eating healthy choices and that I'm exercising because it doesn't come, you know, easily to me to be naturally fed. And so that's what I look at the same way as mindset. That there are people who are naturally thin. There are people who are naturally very flexible. There are people who are naturally very happy. But if you're not naturally good at that, you can get better with practice. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. So would you say that to know whether or not, because 50% of it is genetically predetermined. So to know whether or not you consuming all of those things, is that what you would say? Like how you know? Well, here's the thing. Like we've all been through over the last, you know, three months, 
an unprecedented time, right? I mean, a really, really unprecedented time. And some people approached it like, oh my goodness, you know, I can't go to the grocery store. I'm going to get a disease and I'm going to die, you know, or I'm going to infect my grandmother or, you know, whatever it is. And other people were like, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to learn how to make bread. (laughs) And here I am. And I've also organized my garage and, you know, whatever, I'm going to, you know, train for the Boston Marathon, you know, whatever it is. And so I think this is that for some people, bad things happen and it's pretty easy for them to pick themselves up. I give an example in my book of my oldest child who really has a remarkable gift for this and that he was uh, a freshman in high school and he got a severe like warning grade in his Spanish class. Like literally he had a 58 in the class, an F. And he was like, mom, it's an F plus. And he saw himself as like improving from the 50 that he'd had earlier in the semester. Whereas I was like, you're going to fail Spanish and they're going to throw you from the school. And like, this is terrible and you're never going to get into college, you know, and so on. And so I think that for some people, no matter what happens, you know, they get fired from their job and they say, you know what? I really didn't like that job to begin with, (laughs) you know, and other people are like, I'm going to be unemployed and, you know, on food stamps, you know, and some people have a relationship breakup and they say, you know what? I, I love that person and I learned something about myself and I'll be better in subsequent relationships. And other people are like, I'm going to die alone. (laughs) And, And so I think that, that part of it really is that people naturally look at positive events, negative events in their own life in very different ways. And that probably is, as you know, genetically predisposed. But even if you're not genetically predisposed to be happier, there are things you can do to actually become happier with some effort. One of the things that I was really interested to learn more about is, okay, when we think about this 50% that is not genetically predisposed and that we have the control over, it seems to be very impacted by the kinds of information that we expose ourselves to or that we are exposed to. Can you talk a little bit about that in the context of your findings and maybe what pieces of that um, research do you feel like you found most kind of meaningful or important? So I would say there are two things that I found really fascinating. So one of those is that the presence of social media, people around us has a major influence on how we feel. So when you're on social media and everybody's talking about, you know, my life is great and I took this trip and, you know, whatever, we can start feeling down on ourselves. Uh, There's something I talk about, you know, pretty regularly called the wealthy neighborhood paradox, which is that living in a a wealthy neighborhood can make you actually feel worse about yourself in some ways because there's all of a sudden this comparison is really, really intense. And so there's an example of what we're exposed to. And that could be live, what you're exposed to in your neighborhood. It could be what you're exposed to online, but that can make you actually feel worse about yourself. But the other thing, which I think is so important to remember And this is something that we all actually know, which is the placebo effect, right? That if you give somebody a a sugar pill and you say, this is going to help your headache, you know, then you actually experience headache relief. And what lots of research is now showing in neuroscience and psychology is that the information that we are exposed to actually can change and shape how our body physiologically responds to things. So telling somebody this is a placebo pill, this is going to make you feel better, actually leads to uh, reductions in pain at a neurological level. Uh, Telling somebody, 
hey, you know, the regular kinds of things you're doing in your daily job are actually counting towards your physical fitness. You just tell people that four weeks later, they've lost weight and lower blood pressure and lower BMI. So I think that the key is that we actually have a lot of control over the information that we expose ourselves to and the way that we frame that information in ways that actually can make us feel happier and healthier. I loved, and I found it so fascinating in the book where you share the examples where people actually had placebo surgery, surgical procedures. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is something I'll warn you that people always find like super creepy because they're like, <laughs> what if I've had a placebo surgery and I didn't know. But so in, in one of the earliest demonstrations of this, it was done at a hospital in Houston, Texas, at a veterans hospital. These were men who were veterans who were having severe knee pain. And they literally randomly assigned the men to different conditions. One of the groups had actual orthoscopic knee surgery. One of the groups of men had sort of a small procedure. So they, they cut the knee open, they scraped the cartilage, they sewed it back up. The third group of men had no actual procedure. They put the men under anesthesia, they cut the knee open, they sewed it back up. So they literally just created a scar. The surgeon did the procedure and then never interacted with them again. But then other researchers followed up with these men for 18 months. And every month they asked them, you know, how is your pain? How is your flexibility? You know, can you go upstairs? You know, and so on. Is your mobility improved? And what they found, no difference. Men in all three groups improved at the same level. Now, let me say that does not mean that all surgery is fake and no one should have surgery and it's all in your mind. (laughs) obviously, you know, there are benefits of having surgery, but that study really demonstrates that the mind is very complex. And it's probably the case that having some knee pain, believing that you're going to feel better may have led you to change your behavior in some way, may have led you to do things that are different, may have led you to follow physical therapy recommendations, may have reduced your stress, may have done other things that actually led to those results. And that's the power of the placebo effect, even with so-called placebo surgery. Wow. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> but I believe it though. I mean, I think that there are, I mean, even certain drugs that can be placebo, like you think that you're getting this anti something and your mind is actually doing it. Right. Well, and, and that power of knowing that the mind has that influence exactly as you just illustrated means that we actually can kind of affect ourselves. So in another study that I described that I think is so important, they change how people think about stress. So we so often think about stress, you know, stress is debilitating, stress is bad for you physically, stress is, you know, causes anxiety and depression. And as soon as you have that expectation, Stress, of course, causes those things. But instead, you could think, oh my gosh, I'm experiencing some stress. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. You know, this is when I do my best work. I'm energized. I'm alive. I'm challenged. And that can actually make you feel better. So that's an example kind of of doing the placebo effect for yourself, right? Reframing how you think about stress can lead you to feel better. And that's a really important finding that we can actually use in our lives in a really tangible way. If I'm feeling good, I'm less likely to do meditation, for example, because I'm like, oh, well, I'm already, I don't need it. But when I'm feel, having a really tough day, then I use that to, okay, I'm going to do a meditation. I'm going to journal. I'm going to get everything out. So it's just like, yeah, I love that using your emotions to do something and do something with the stress. One of the things that I'm interested in talking more about, you briefly mentioned the happiness as it relates to wealthy neighborhoods. 
what are your thoughts on happiness and money in general? So what lots of research shows, and this isn't just my work, this is lots of people's work. What lots of research shows is that if you are not worried about basic survival, so if you're not worried, you know, am I going to have enough food to eat? Do I have a safe place to sleep or whatever? If you're not worried about basic survival, more money does not lead to more happiness. And the reason for that is, is we adjust very, very quickly to newfound wealth. So we think, oh, I'll be a little bit happier once I just get a raise or make a little bit more money. And then you get to that level. And in fact, you are initially happy and then you just adjust right to that level and think, well, if I just had a little bit more. And so it sort of is this like endless cycle because there's always, of course, you know, more money that you could have and, and you have this expectation that that'll make a difference. But what I think is really important to remember, because this is also something that we can control, is that what matters far more than how much money you have again, above the level of you know, subsistence and not being worried about survival, it's how you spend your money. So spending your money in, in ways that bring you experiences is a lot better in terms of leading to happiness than just the, the mere acquiring it. Um, and so that could be going to see a Broadway show or travel or you know, a concert you know, the Super Bowl, you know, whatever, going to some specific event, having some experience lets you anticipate the experience, lets you experience it, and then lets you reflect back on it. And that's a better thing to spend money on. You get a more lasting boost of happiness than being like, oh, you know, I'll be happy once I buy this new, you know, cell phone or purse or shoes or whatever. Yeah. I think that Going back to, because I feel like it's kind of related to the what we expose ourselves to because it's kind of like, are you around wealthier people or not? I always feel really lucky because I grew up in a relatively small town where I really didn't know any, many or maybe any people who had like a lot more than me. And so I never had that experience that I think a lot of my friends have had where they grew up seeing you know, a lot of different levels or people that did have more than them. And I really see a difference in adulthood for people who did have that experience versus didn't. Um, so that's just sort of an aside and why part of why I found it so interesting. If we're going back to, you know, that idea and also thinking about the information we expose ourselves to, what are some of the actions that you would suggest that we can take to kind of protect ourselves or be exposing ourselves or not exposing ourselves to the right or wrong kind of information? Yes. So one of the reasons that I was so happy when you all invited me to have this conversation, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book, is that actually understanding this appearance reality gap is really, really important because just understanding it helps us make that distinction in our minds. So here's a simple example. When we're on social media, which lots of us spend a lot of time on, it's very easy to kind of get swept away by people's gorgeous pictures, right? They post pictures that are Photoshopped, that are filtered, you know, in which they look perfect. And you're sort of like, oh, my life, you know, does not look anything like that, you know, in that way. And so what I think is so important is for people to recognize that what they're seeing and the information they're exposing themselves to is not just factual information. That when you're on social media, you're not seeing just a perfect autobiographical detail of a person's life. You're seeing a carefully curated example of their life. And although on some level, of course, we all know that because we do it ourselves, it's really important to be reminded that what you're seeing reflects what they're choosing to present. It's not their actual life. I think it's also important for us to remember that the gap between what somebody is showing 
And what they're actually living may not be something that we really can even identify with. And so there are people that overwhelmingly appear to have wonderful, perfect lives. And yet in reality, they're really struggling in some way in ways that we not, may not be aware of. And I think that's a really important thing for us to recognize. We often don't recognize what people are struggling with and that even somebody who looks like they have a perfect relationship may in fact be struggling or somebody who looks like they have no concerns about money may actually be feeling lots of stress. We don't know the in, inside of what happens with lots of people and we should remember that when we're beating ourselves up for not appearing as wealthy or pretty or you know popular or whatever it is. One of the other pieces that I found really interesting that you talk about in the book is around, I think it was in the, in the context of the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, which I think would be great to talk about. And particularly when you talk about that in the context of relationships and this idea of soulmates, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this fixed versus growth mindset one, I think is so important because many of us grew up thinking, well, some people are like this and some people are like that. And that could be about anything, right? It could be about, you know, certain people are smart and certain people aren't, or, or, you know, certain people are athletic or musical or, you know, empathetic or whatever it is, and certain people aren't. And that fixed mindset really sticks us. It sticks us in a box. This is what I'm like, and I can't change. And what lots of research now in psychology suggests is that, in fact, adopting a growth mindset, understanding that change is possible is really essential. And that's true about everything. Maybe you're not naturally good at math. You know what? You can get better at math with practice. Maybe you're not naturally good at, you know, seeing the world from somebody else's perspective or showing empathy. You can actually develop that skill or that muscle. I think in one of the most profound examples is this idea that, well, relationships are good or relationships are bad. You know, that my relationship is is perfect or it's horrible and I should leave that person. And so I've been married for, um, let's see, I'm trying to do the math here. <laughs> Um, uh, just about 27 years. So just about 27 years. Yeah. Tell me. And I will say it's hard. Marriage is hard that we struggle. Um, we fight. Um, there are times in which, you know, we've, we've really struggled. Um, and I am a, a strong believer in therapy. I'm a strong believer in couples therapy. And I'm a strong believer that you get out of a relationship, what you put in. When I'm doing a big keynote talk on the science of happiness, I show an image um, and the image is of a ballet dancer, just their feet. And on one side, it's a ballet dancer wearing toe shoes, point shoes. And on the other side, it's that same dancer and their foot is bare. And you see uh, bruised, broken toenails and calluses, you know, and so on. And there's a wonderful quote that I won't share with you now because I'll butcher it, but it's by Tolstoy and it's in my book, but it's about how relationships are work. And it's a lovely quote that talks about, it's like getting into a boat on a smooth, still water that looks like it would be easy to just row. And then you get in and it's hard that your hands are sore and it takes muscles and so on. And that's the key in terms of relationships. Good relationships are the single best predictor of our happiness. And that's romantic relationships, friendships, you know, relationships with family members and so on. Relationships are the key to happiness. But you don't get relationships by magic. It's not easy, effortless, and so on. It takes struggle. 
and work and conflict and compromise. Um, and that's how you get them. And that's really the key that we can all have better relationships, but they don't happen by magic. We have to work for those. And that's really the power of the growth mindset. Work for the relationship that you deserve and that you want to have. What about with the idea of soulmates? Is the idea of there's this one person out there? What's your take on that? Yeah, exactly. That, you know, there is one and only one person. (laughs) Let's hope that person doesn't live in Guatemala, right? You know? (laughs) So, so there's, yeah, there's one and only one person. And if your relationship isn't going well, it's because that person's in Guatemala that you're supposed to be with. Um, (laughs) So the idea that, you know, yeah, if it's my soulmate, then the relationship is going to be perfect. And if it's not, you know, then I should cut my losses and leave. And yeah, that's exactly right. And so again, adopting a growth mindset about relationships is really, really important that all of us can have good relationships with any number of different people. But what it takes is is work. And people who understand that do have better, longer, more satisfying relationships. One of the things I think I've heard a lot in the context of relationships, especially when we're talking about like all of the different kinds of relationships in our lives is the idea of like vulnerability leading to better relationships. I think maybe that's one of the Brene Brown kind of principles. Do you have thoughts on that or as it relates to this work and in terms of vulnerability? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing that vulnerability is essential. And that's, in all honesty, part of being emotionally intelligent. You know, part of being emotionally intelligent very broadly is being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to acknowledge weaknesses, being willing to be intimate, uh, actually involves expressing who you are. That psychologists often talk about it in terms of your authentic self. Who are you really? And that who are you really is what's so very important. And you can't really have close relationships if you're not willing to have that level of vulnerability of who you really are. And that includes vulnerability about things you feel insecure about, things that you perceive as weaknesses. And that being able to be close and intimate with somebody means letting them see who you really are, not just your sort of, you know, fabricated image of who you really are. And that's what's really essential. I'd love to talk about that a little bit in, in the context of work as well. So we often explore career things and career transitions. And Catherine and I actually do coaching work as well. And one of the things that comes up in some of those career conversations is this idea that like, well, I can't ask because they'll, they'll think I'm, I, I don't know what I'm doing or, you know, I have to show that I'm, you know, the best and already know everything. And I think that I thought about that in the context of the vulnerability, because I think that, you know, there is strength in that. Why do you think that in general, and then maybe in the context of work as well, we are hesitant or reluctant to be vulnerable and share when we don't know something or have all the answers? Yeah, I love that question. And I get a version of that question a lot. And I'm actually now going to shift and I'm going to talk about a different book that I've written, which is Why We Act. And here's a story that I tell in Why We Act. And I'm going to ask you both a question. And I'm going to ask your listeners a question. Have you ever been in a college lecture in which the professor said, do you have any questions? And you had a question and you chose not to raise your hand. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> whenever, whenever I say that, and I, and I give that example a lot, every single person is like, yes, I'm doing it in like a webinar. People type in like, yes, like capitals and like 
14 exclamation points. Everybody knows that. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting. Again, I'm going to ask you a question. You're in a class. The person says, do you have any questions? You have a question. So, you know, you know what you're supposed to do and you choose not to raise your hand. Why do you not raise your hand when the person says, do you have any questions? And you had one. Why did you not? I can go. I, I think either because I think, well, it's a stupid question. I'm the only one with this question or, you know, I should already know. <laughs> right? Yeah. Same, Catherine, yeah, yeah, that right? would be exactly the same. Yeah. That's what, and everybody says that. And everybody mm-hmm. knows. Everybody yeah. knows. I have a question. I really want to ask it, but it's just me. And here's what you do. You look around at all the other people <laughs> and all the other people are not raising their hands. Now, what you should logically do then, right, is say, gosh, I have a question but I'm not raising my hand because I don't want to look stupid. And when I look around all the other people, they're not raising their hands. You know what? They also don't want to look stupid. But that's not what you say. You look at all the other people not raising their hands and you're not like, they're embarrassed because they don't want to look stupid. You say they're not raising their hands because they are what? They know everything. They know everything. They're smart. (laughs) They're not because they're smart. They, They know everything. And so there's a case. Your behavior, not raising your hand, is exactly the same as everybody else's behavior, not raising your hand. But you assume that your behavior is driven by fear of looking stupid and their behavior is driven by their sheer intelligence. And that is actually a story that I tell in my, in my recent book, Why We Act, because here's the thing, that inhibits you from asking a question because you don't want to look stupid. But the reality is everyone has that same universal feeling. Every time I give that example with you both, but with every single person, everyone gets it. Everyone's like, yes. Yes, that's me. <laughs> but that's not just taking place in college. That's taking place in jobs. That's taking place in people's personal lives. That's taking place when people are like, I see this kind of problematic thing and I'm not responding. It happens all the time that we assume our behavior is driven by something that's different from other people's behavior. So here's what's wonderful. Once you gain that little tiny kernel of wisdom that I just shared, you all of a sudden can think about things differently. Oh, I have this question, but I'm not asking it because I don't want to look stupid. Oh, but you know what? I bet these other people also have the same question and they don't want to look stupid either because now I've given you this insight into how you feel like everybody else. And that's actually a super important insight because it has lots of sort of practical implications um, for work life and for our personal lives. Yeah. And because if somebody did ask a question, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, oh God, they're so stupid. Like, why did they ask that? Or that's a stupid question. I would actually be impressed by them for asking in in the college setting. And not just in the college setting, also in the work setting. And Mm -hmm. I'll say as a professor, when somebody asks a question, occasionally there will be a daring person. Here's what's weird. Everybody starts writing down the answer that I'm saying, (laughs) which because they didn't have a question. So really those people shouldn't get to write, right? Yeah. Only the person who should get to write. But that's the thing is that I've been in repeatedly in meetings in a workplace in which somebody actually dares to, try to ask a question and then everybody's like, oh, thank goodness, because I had that same question. I didn't want to look stupid. So you're exactly right, Catherine, that people actually really appreciate it because mm-hmm. they recognize it can be hard to ask a question. And when you ask a question, everybody's like, oh yeah, I needed that question too. I had that exact same question. And that's the key, recognizing that the factors that inhibit our behavior, us from speaking up, are the same as what inhibit other people, gives us the power to speak up and ask questions and not worry about looking stupid. And that also made me think of this phenomenon that I feel like I've seen in situations like that, where it's like, 
No one has a question. And then one person asks the question and then the floodgates open and then everyone's asking a question. It's like, it just takes that one to kind of open that door up a little bit. And so I've definitely seen that a lot, both at work. And then, you know, I go to a lot of panels and things like that, where it's like, no one's wants to ask. And then it's like this, you know, this flow of questions. Well, and, and that reality, I mean, I know that we're talking about sort of happiness and, and you know, health and everything, but that reality is actually really important more broadly because that reality is also what leads people not to speak up in the face of really bad behavior. So if you look at the Harvey Weinstein case, when that came out, every single woman was like, oh my gosh, it was just me. It was just me. It was just me. And they're not understanding that it was not just them. It was a whole hell of a lot of people. And each individual person was like, oh, maybe I did something or maybe I let him on, or maybe I was misinterpreting or whatever. And the reality is that happens in lots of different cases in which if one person dares to ask the question or one person stands up and says, no, 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 that's not okay. What you're doing other people often will follow and say, wait, I had that same experience too. And we've seen that in a lot of high profile examples in which there is accusations of bad behavior that somebody finally dares to come forward with. Um, And then lots of other people say, yeah, me too. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things about that is like, I think so often we can blame ourselves in some way, even if it's not like a blatant blame, but it's like, well, that my experience, and and I mean, maybe if it's not even something as serious as, as that example, but saying, well, maybe that was because I did this, or maybe I shouldn't have XYZ. So I think that we can sometimes feel afraid to speak up or feel that we don't even have a right to speak up when we feel like maybe we could have done something better, even if it was small. But it feels like from what we're talking about, that even just bringing it up, asking the question, even if there is a little bit of that is really important. It is. And I think your example just now is that if one person can raise something, it often gives other people the courage to do the same. You know, and what's hard is being the first person. And I think that's a really important thing for people to recognize in lots of different cases that they could experience in their work life, you know, in their personal life and so on, that often your experience is in fact identical to a lot of other people's experience. And we just don't understand that. And so we do blame ourselves. You know, I must have led him on, you know, I must have done this, or, you know, I'm the only one here who doesn't get it, or I'm the only one here who finds that joke, offensive, you know, whatever it is, you know, it can be lots of different things, but recognizing that our behavior is in fact much more normative than we expect. I describe a story in my book, Why We Act, where a basketball player, male basketball player, a student of mine, very you know, smart kid, came into my office one day and said, every day in the locker room, someone says something offensive. <laughs> so first of all, great. <laughs> And second of all, interesting that he, you know, felt comfortable saying it to me, but here's what struck me. He identified him as I'm the only one who feels this way. You know, it's just me. I'm sitting in this locker room, somebody saying something offensive. What occurred to me as a social psychologist is I bet lots of other kids are sitting in that same locker room going like, oh, that's offensive. But each of them is like, oh, I guess it's just me. I guess it's just me. And so none of them will speak up. And that's why it keeps happening. Because if somebody said, uh, that's kind of offensive, or I don't really like that joke, name, comment, you know, whatever it is, you know, term, I don't like it, it would stop. But each individual person might be telling somebody, that's really offensive. 
but none of them will have the courage in that locker room to speak up. And so we all need to recognize if we're at a meeting, if we're in a boardroom, if we're at a fraternity party, you know, whatever, we all have the power to speak up. And in many, many, many cases, there are lots of other people who are feeling the same exact thing we're feeling and are being too scared to ask the question because they don't want to appear stupid or to show a weakness. Lots of other people are feeling the same. Mm. Yeah. I think about it too. And like, how will I feel after I actually say something? When I don't say something, I often... Like it, it could even be things on a smaller scale, like a friend talking about another one of our friends in a negative way. And I leave that conversation feeling sick to my stomach because I didn't say anything. So when I do, I think about that moment, like even if it doesn't come out right or if I don't say the right thing or whatever, at least I'm saying something and standing up for what I believe in. And so I, I always try and just envision how I'll feel after I do that. That's a really nice example. And I will say that over the last couple of months as I've been, you know, promoting this new book, which of course examines, you know, bad behavior of all types, people tell me stories after stories that are literally haunting them. You know, I remember that time, you know, I was in a grocery store, I was in a hotel ballroom, or I was in this meeting and I didn't speak up. And, and I think that's a really nice way of thinking, how will I feel if I don't do anything? And to kind of push yourself to act, right? How am I going to feel? Am I going to replay it for two days or two mm-hmm. months? Oh, here was the perfect comeback. <laughs> In March of this year, I have a friend who has a daughter. Her daughter's like 21. Um, and the daughter's Asian. She was adopted from China as a baby. The daughter's like 21, 22, just graduated from college. She was on a bus in Boston in March, the daughter, when a man on the bus stood up and started yelling, go back to China. You brought us the coronavirus. Oh my God. Oh, God. Americans. Oh. You know, yeah, it's horrible. So the oh daughter, the mom, you know, was totally upset. The mom is my friend. The mom called me. But here's what the mom said to me No one on the bus said anything. Uh, right? No yeah. one on the bus went over and sat with her. No one on the bus told the man to shut up. No one on the bus said, of course, she didn't bring the coronavirus. And, and that's the thing is that if it was you or your daughter or your sister or your friend, you would want someone to stick up for them. And that story just broke my heart. Oh my right? God, that's like making me so emotional. That's what an awful experience. Yeah. 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 And there's an example. And, you know, I actually wrote about that story in um, a blog post that I did for Psychology Today. I have a blog. And in all honesty, I'm hoping that somebody on that bus reads that blog post and is like, oh my God, that was me on that bus. And I should have said something because we've been in situations and and what it would have taken for one person on that bus. And and I'm sure everybody on the bus was like, that man is crazy. Oh yeah. Bus were like, that person brought us coronavirus, but no one said anything. Takes one person. Yeah. It's so crazy because of that, you know, that makes me think of that, you know, famous, case, and I don't remember the name, but I'm sure you know it, obviously. And Catherine, you probably learned about it in school. We all learn about it in school where the woman was being murdered in the apartment complex and no one said anything. And we learn about that now. And then, and we think, oh my God, like now that would never happen, but it happens in more kind of less dire ways now still. And so I think that's a really important thing to reflect on. Kitty Genovese, 
Yes, yes. Genevieve <laughs> <laughs> is the case, and I actually I talk about that case in my book and other examples. Um, and there are many examples now uh, in which that same kind of thing happens. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I feel like kind of relates that I know you talk about in the positive shift, and I feel like relates to this conversation as well is the idea of surrounding yourself with. I think you say surrounding yourself with happy friends, but I also think about that in the context of, and it's kind of a principle of mine too, surrounding yourself with people you want to be like. And so if you're surrounding yourself with the people who are speaking up and are comfortable with doing that, like you're going to be in a better place. But can you talk about that a little bit, the impact of who we surround ourselves with? Yeah, I I really love that example. And so in terms of, and, and you're right, that's a really nice connection that it actually is about both things that we've talked about. So research has shown that happiness is contagious, like the flu, that, that if you spend more time with people who are happy, you actually get happier. It kind of rubs off on you. It's like a, a mindset. And that's particularly important for people who like maybe don't actually naturally find it easy to be happy being around other people who are like, oh, you know, here's the silver lining. You know, I can so easily do this actually does rub off on you. But it's also really important in our personal lives. I have this uh, a friend and not really a close friend, somebody you know I'm sort of a little bit like distantly colleagues with and, and we follow each other on Instagram. So not a friend, close friend. But um, he posted something about the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, like, like many people were doing. Yeah. And, you know, I liked it or whatever. And then like two or three days later, he posted on Instagram and he said, I've noticed a lot of people have stopped following me or were concerned about my Black Lives Matter post. And I just want to say good riddance because I do support Black Lives Matter. <laughs> yeah. hey, by the way, it's Pride Month and later I'm going to be posting <laughs> for, for Pride Month. So if that's going to bother you, better to just not follow me now. And I don't even really know him, but I like sent him a private message and I was like, way to go, Rich. Yes. Like so profound being like, hey, this is who I am. And I am actually interested in having people in my social network um, who are supporting Black Lives Matter and who are supporting Pride Month. And if it ain't you, don't follow. And I was like, yes. And I loved that example because yeah, it is who do we choose to surround ourselves with? And we got some choice. Yeah. It's so freeing as well. Like I was authentically myself, did exactly what I authentically believed in. And it's just freeing than being scared and on the other side. You talked about one of the talks that I listened to of yours, the sensation score, which I found really interesting as it relates to happiness. Can you talk about that? Yes. So one of the things that I think is really important for people to remember is that happiness is not one size fits all. And I think that's really important to remember because we so often get the message that it's like, well, you have to meditate, you know, or you have to do, you know, whatever. And you know what? Different people find different things relaxing. Different people find different things inducing for happiness. And so the sensation-seeking score is a scale that's developed by psychologists. And basically what it measures is the extent to which you feel best under conditions of high physiological arousal. So sort of like, you know, the experience of being on a roller coaster. Some people are like, I love that feeling of like plunging, you know, potentially to my death. And other people are like, I hate that feeling. And what's important to remember is this is not like a, you know, it's good or it's bad, you know, like IQ, high scores are good, low scores are bad. 
What matters is that you figure out which one you are. So I give a couple of examples um, at the very end of the positive shift, but I'll just give a couple examples for your listeners now. So I say, some people would like to parachute out of an airplane. Some people would like to never parachute out of an airplane. That's, That's a pretty Some people, when they get into a pool, are like toe, knee, ankle, thigh. And some people are like dive cannonball right in. Some people, when they go on vacation, like the warmth and comfort of a luxury hotel. And some people like the excitement and adventure of camping outdoors. So again, those are ways in which you can kind of categorize yourself. And what's important to remember is that happiness is not one size fits all. Some people are like, oh, I would love to camp. I I would love to jump out of an airplane. You know, I would love to whatever. And then other people are like, no, I want to, you know, relax or be pampered or, you know, have a pedicure or, you know, sit alone and read a book. And so what's important about that sensation seeking scale is that happiness is not one size fits all. You have to figure out what makes you happy. And it might not be the same thing that your boyfriend or your spouse or your sister or, you know, whatever finds that makes them happy. And in the book by talking, I have like five different chapters in which I kind of go through, well, for some people it's this and for some people it's this, because what I'm hoping is that everybody will find something that speaks to them, but not feel pressured to say, I have to, you know, meditate or I have to bake bread or I have to run a marathon or whatever it is. If that's not the thing that does it for you, happiness is very individual. What are some of the things that you do to keep your mindset and, you know, keep your happiness in the way that you want it to be, knowing that it's individual, would love to hear some of the practices or some of the things that you do. Yeah. So for me, one of the biggest is exercise. I am super into exercise, not jogging. I hate jogging with a passion, but other kinds of exercise. So um, I love walking. I love especially walking outside. I have a treadmill, but I kind of think it's a bummer if I have to be on the treadmill. So I really like walking outside. I also really like reading. I read a lot of fiction, but I also read nonfiction. And that's something that for me, I can tell that if I'm not doing well psychologically, it's because I go to bed at night, like on my phone, reading Twitter and that's never good. And so I try to adopt a, put my phone away, you know, not in arm's length of my bed, get into bed with an actual physical book. I'm like into the physical tangible part of um, holding a page. That's one for me. I mean, the other thing for me is reaching out and connecting with friends. So of course, you know, we're doing this in like a, you know, socially distant kind of time, but I actually had my husband a few weeks ago and he's like not super handy. He has like lots of really good traits and skills, but handiness is not like that. But I had him go to Home Depot and buy a bunch of string lights and string them around like the outside of our deck so that we could have people over um, outside, like in a safe and socially distant way. And I've now been inviting friends over, you know, a couple every Friday or Saturday night. And we've gotten like takeout dinner. So everybody like, it's like, bring your own food. So like nobody <laughs> else's food. Um, and we sit outside and like socially distant thing under these beautiful string lights. And it's been like super nice and super relaxing. And for me, just catching up with friends was something that I was really, really missing when it just kind of felt like not really safe to see people at all. And I was spending enough time on Zoom that I was not interested in doing Zoom cocktail hours or, you know, Zoom. Yeah. Uh, the same. <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it. I was like, there's nothing to me that's like fun about that. And, and that's been actually like really, really pleasant and really relaxing. And so for me, you know, those are things that have been really important. Have you seen any differences in happiness 
levels for, with everything going on with the coronavirus? Researchers started immediately and it's bad. It's actually bad. The rates are, okay. there's higher feelings of stress, there's higher feeling of negativity. And I think the challenge, and again, one of the reasons why I was so glad when you all invited me to do this, this conversation, because I think it's really important for people to have strategies. I think one of the challenges that we're facing right now is that this coronavirus pandemic is actually like three different pandemics. So one, there is real and tangible concern about health, right? Like, so am I going to get it? I'm going to pass it to somebody, even if I'm young and healthy, you know, if I go to the grocery store, am I going to pass it to, you know, somebody else who's immune compromised or older or whatever? So there's real concern about people's tangible physical well-being for themselves or their loved ones. There's real uh, financial insecurity for a lot of people. So people have, you know, jobs, some people have gotten fired, some people have had, you know, wages cut back. Some people's, you know, industry is, is uncertain in terms of the future. And so there's real financial instability. And then three, there is ambiguity. And humans hate ambiguity. So we mm. don't know. People are like, is this the new normal? We have no idea. Is there going to be a vaccine? Is there going to be a treatment? Am I going to be able to leave my house? Are my kids going to be able to go back to school? You know, are college students going to go back in the classroom? And so this ambiguity of, you know, it would be easier to say, well, you know, there's a blizzard and the blizzard is going to come and then the blizzard is going to go. And then the weather forecast next week is that it will be sun. It is not that. We have no idea. And I say to, you know, my students all the time, well, I hope to see you in 2020, <laughs> but it might be 2021. And yeah. you know what? That's just true. And so part of it is that it's it's really this ambiguity is actually psychologically very hard for people. And so currently we actually are seeing higher rates of stress and anxiety. And why I think it's really important for people to understand that even in the midst of some fear, some anxiety, some uncertainty, there are all still things we can do to feel happier and healthier. And in fact, it's especially important to do those things right now so that we can be happier and healthier when the sort of normal go-to things, you know, I can't just go to my gym. I can't plan an exciting, you know, Christmas in Paris or, you know, whatever. Finding things that will, that will make us happy is actually especially important right now. With everything that we've talked about and maybe anything we haven't, what would you say is like one thing that everyone should be doing to keep their mindset in a good place and set themselves up for happiness? So I think what's really important to remember is that there's lots and lots of pleasure and happiness in planning, mm. in, in anticipation. And so what I think is wonderful is for people to actually get out a piece of paper, maybe their phone, but I'm kind of a big fan of old school paper, and write down things you are going to look forward to when this is over. We did this as a family. I have three kids. We did this as a family sort of early on and everybody said, what are you looking forward to? And my husband actually said, I'm looking forward to going to the grocery store and being able to find toilet paper. <laughs> a low budget thing for him. But for me, I'm looking forward to travel. I love travel and I'm looking forward to, here's, and I'm going to be specific. Florence, Italy. When oh, this yeah. is over, I am going with my family to Florence, Italy. That's my thing. I don't know when, but we are going to go to Florence, Italy. Uh, again, when the Italians let us in. <laughs> Not clear when the Italians will be letting us in, but nonetheless. But that can be, you know what? I've always wanted to go to the Super Bowl. I'm going to go to the Super Bowl. It could be I've always wanted to see the Broadway play. I've always wanted to see the Grand Canyon. You know, whatever it is. 
figure out. And, and that could be, I, I want to go and sit and have a massage, you know, and somebody, I can't do that. I had, a pedicure, um, I had a pedicure on Saturday and I had been anticipating that flipping pedicure, you know, and I had a pedicure while I was wearing a mask and the person doing the pedicure had a mask and a face shield and like every other chair, of course, was blocked out. But you know what? I loved that pedicure. So write down what you are looking forward to anticipate that because we will get back to normal and we need to have hope and plans for the future. Well, I feel like we have covered so much. So this has been such an amazing conversation. One question that we ask in closing to all of our guests, because the podcast is called This Life Explains It All, is what life experience for you has been your greatest teacher? Rejection. (laughs) <laughs> so, so that's it rejection and and I will say you know I I have a pretty good life you know I've been married for you know 27 years or whatever I've got three kids I've published some books and so that all looks really great you know whatever the person that I'm married to and if people are really interested in this you can actually google like Katherine Sanderson Boston Globe happiness person I'm married to was a friend of mine in college and I expressed interest in dating him twice during college. And each time he was like, no, I'm not really attracted to you. I don't really think of you that way. You know, whatever. Yeah. And that is now my husband. And you can read the longer story about that literally in an interview I did with the Boston Globe, you know, five years ago or something. So rejection twice, he like flat out 100% rejected me. He is now my husband. I have published uh, two books, both of which got rejected resoundly by multiple agents and multiple publishers. And yet now they're two books. And so (laughs) rejection. Yeah. Wow. That's really, really important. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, we'll link your books and your work, but for everyone listening, where's the best place to find you and your work? Can you tell us the name of both of your books again? Sure. Thanks for that opportunity. So I have a website, which is sandersonspeaking.com and people can watch as I think you all might've done already videos of me talking what I now say with my whole body, not just <laughs> like my head in um, a webinar format. So you can, so sandersonspeaking.com, you can check out my um, books, my, you know, media interviews I've done, you know, talks, etc. I'm on Instagram at sandersonspeaking and I post every day about happiness, health, you know, my life, good, evil, uh, moral courage, and so on. So yeah, check me out. I love to make these connections. And honestly, the pandemic has been a time in which I think connection has been super important, right? That Mm -hmm. that being connected has been wonderful. And it's a real, as a psychologist, it's actually been a real upside of social media that often gets such a bad rap um, in general. And I think it's been a way in which people have really felt connected uh, during this time. So thanks for the opportunity to talk. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was an incredible conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.